Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Our mission is to share information and inspiration for living well and staying safe. And we're brought to you each week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education and training. And sadly, on Tuesday, an assailant killed five people and injured 10 others in Rancho Tahama, California. And I've got on the phone with me today... Safety expert and president of SSI Guardian, Michael Yorio, who will describe what happened and also help us understand how to respond in an active shooting incident and what we can do, if anything, to prevent these types of tragedies. And to help us understand how to recover following a critical incident, I also have disaster mental health expert and psychologist, Dr. George Everly. And Dr. Everly is considered one of the founding fathers of disaster mental health and he's an expert on building resilience, or what he calls psychological body armor, following a critical incident such as just what happened in Rancho Tahama. If you have a question about that incident and what can be done in the aftermath to help in building resistance and enhance recovery for the survivors as well as their community, we're taking your calls today at 303-477-5600. And I'll introduce Dr. George Everly shortly, but first, uh, Michael Yorio, thanks for being back with us today on the phone. Michael? All right. Well, let's uh, go on to Dr. Everly then. Dr. Everly, are you? Yeah, there's Michael. Okay. Hi, Michael. Sorry, back connection, Dr. Payne. Okay. I'm doing well. Um, It seems like I've got you on almost every week talking about these tragedies um, they're not going away, are they? They certainly are not. Um, this is something we talk about all the time, that these incidents continue to happen. It's Last time I was on your show, I mentioned we had a busy 40 days, 35 days. Now we're pressing 40 days of a variety of different incidents, all uniquely different, but at the end of the day, uh, innocent people are losing their lives. Mm-hmm. So very concerning and... You know, unfortunately, to your point, I don't think there is an end in sight. We just need as a country and communities to think a bit differently and realize that these things can happen anywhere. That's right. And this assailant started in one location and and moved to several locations, including a school, uh, killing and injuring people along the way. Can you tell us what happened and any um, updates uh, in terms of what the authorities know? Sure. Sure. Based on the reports that I have read, um, it started at his home. Uh, apparently, he had shot and killed his wife earlier or even the day before. And then it spread to his neighborhood. And then the guy seems like he went on a rampage of some sort, highly unpredictable. So, But it's not uncommon for these events to start at a person's residence where they kill a friend or a loved one first and then proceed uh, to another destination. Uh, in this case... Again, he was at his home, went to the neighborhood, um, shot some folks along the way to the school, and then randomly opened fire on the school from the outside, which typically we don't see a whole lot of. Typically, it's an internal threat. Uh, But as I have said on previous shows that I've been on, 
these events are unpredictable. So you can look at statistics and things of that nature, but you have to prepare for a myriad of different threats. And what can you tell listeners uh, to help them respond if they find themselves in a similar situation? And again, that school went on lockdown and the reports are coming out saying that that probably saved a lot of lives. Uh, so if what can we do if we hear that there's a shooter or if our school, our children's school goes into lockdown? Talk about some of the things that we need to be mindful of. First and foremost, uh, the communication out in that county was phenomenal because the event happened off-site from the school. Apparently, the school was notified, and you're exactly right. They have credited the school's survival to them going on lockdown in a quick fashion. Now, they did report that the shooter was shooting through windows, so some students and probably teachers, too, were injured as a result of uh, flying debris, flying glass. So in this case, again, very random. Uh, it was coming their way. They didn't have advance notice, and they did the right thing by locking down. Um, I don't know if he tried to get into the door because the report, and I'm only going by the reports that I've read, that he, has, he shot through some of the windows, broke some windows, but I didn't see any mention in the report that he actually tried to get through the door. So the guy, obviously, I don't think it was a well-thought-out plan. Uh, it seemed very sporadic. But the school did absolutely the right thing in locking down so quickly. Right. And so um, if we are in a shopping center or a theater or even in an outdoor location, we're just seeing so many different varieties of these unfortunate events occurring. Um, what are some of the options that we have if we're not able to um, lock down in a school, for example? What, how do we respond in these kinds of situations? Every, every situation is unique, Dr. Peggy, as you know. If you can't lock down, which in this case, that was the best option for the school because it was an external threat, so you didn't want to leave the school. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're in a shopping mall or a public venue, then your best option probably is to try to evacuate. And if you're in a shopping mall and you hear something or see something, you don't want to go to the main exit. You want to go uh, – Whatever store you're standing in front of, you want to run out to the back of that store because in every mall, there's a back entrance for fire code and also for deliveries. So it's about choosing your right option, and every situation is a bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, but without talking about your options, without, without understanding your options beforehand, it makes it very difficult. I apologize for my voice, uh, fighting a little bit of a cold here. But in any event, you want to understand. So it all starts with training. Somewhere along the line, this school had received some guidance on a lockdown procedure. And apparently, in this case, it certainly worked for those guys. That's right. And so really moving away from the threat is always our, our best option is if um, you can evacuate, move away from the threat, uh, leave out of an entrance that may not be the one you came in, I think is is an important point to emphasize. The main entrance of of a mall, for example, may, may be the closest entrance, uh, but may not be one that will move you away from the threat. So it sounds like the key, Michael, is thinking this through in advance, not just training, but having those what-if uh, kinds of um, uh, uh, thoughts of what would I do if, uh, if I'm in this location, what will I do when I'm with my family, uh, and mental imaging that and even practicing. That's right. Constantly mental imaging. We also call it war gaming, putting yourself mentally uh, through certain scenarios and different scenarios, what would I do 
if this event happened, and then sharing that if you're at work or if you're, at school, or if you're working at a school with your team members so people are following the same action plan. So very important. It doesn't just occur. Um, saying to lock down sounds simple, but it's, yeah, I promise you it's truly not. There's, it's a high-stress situation. Mm-hmm. Some folks will panic uh, depending on where the shooter is. In this case, again, they did have ample warning that a threat was rolling towards their school, fastly approaching them, and the threat arrived and they were prepared. That's right. Great. Well, Michael, you're the president of SSI Guardian. Talk about the type of training that you offer and how listeners can uh, connect with you and take advantage of that training. So we offer a couple different kinds of training. Stop the threat active shooter training. Uh, that's advanced active shooter training that also also combines the excuse me combines the mental health component to it. We have a bereavement and grieving program as well, in addition to a, a stress management program for teachers. So the best way to reach out to us is SSIGuardian.com. Uh, we are a full-service consulting and training company and proud to say we're the only program of our type, Dr. Peggy, with an accredited continuing education unit, and that's issued by NC State University. Outstanding. Well, thanks as always, Michael. I uh, wish it were under better circumstances, uh, but thank you so much for sharing your expertise again with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're Take welcome. Care. And you can reach Michael Yorio as well. Uh, I'll have a link back to him and SSI Guardian on my website, drpegradio.com. Um, I want to bring on next Dr. George Everly, uh, who's calling in from Maryland, uh, to help us to understand how this type of tragedy can affect us in the aftermath. Uh, Dr. George Everly is a psychologist and disaster mental health expert who's co-founder of and representative to the United Nations for the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, a nonprofit United Nations-affiliated public health and safety organization. Dr. Everly is a renowned researcher and author in the areas of disaster, mental health, resilience, and critical incident stress management. And boy, do we need his expertise today. Uh, Dr. George Everly, thanks so much for being with us by phone. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you, you heard Michael Yorio uh, describe uh, what recently happened. I'm sure you're, you're plugged into uh, these incidents. Uh, they seem like they're happening every week almost. Uh, this is just one type of the many uh, critical incidents that we're experiencing in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, you've been involved uh, with the response to many different critical incidents over the decades, uh, and they're more common than we might think. Uh, can you talk about um, what we mean by critical incident and some of the stats on how often they really do occur? A critical incident can be thought of as anything from an emergency to a disaster. And emergencies are typically things that we think of that can be handled by police and fire and paramedics and EMTs. And that's not to say that they are uh, any can be any less devastating, but um, they are they're typically on a, a local level. The disaster, on the other hand, is something that exceeds uh, most local response capacity. Uh, it's something that affects a town and requires another town's assistance or the state's assistance, or perhaps it's something that affects a state or even an entire nation. So, critical incidents are things that are, that are upsetting that can be uh, that can take not just a physical toll but also a psychological toll. 
my area of expertise, as you point out, is uh, human psychology and mental health. So I'm a terrorism expert as well as a disaster expert, uh, but I don't deal with things from the same perspective as your previous guest. Mm-hmm. I'm not an operations expert. My area is uh, what do we do when such terrible things might happen, either on the individual level, the organizational level, or even the community level. And I also am very interested in developing preventative programs. Can we immunize people, organizations, and even communities in terms of uh, 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 raising their level of resistance to such things? As I think you both pointed out, uh, events such as the shooting that you just discussed, uh, they happen all too frequently. Uh, but they are relatively rare. That's the good news. They're remarkably hard to predict. And while we cannot necessarily prepare for them physically with 100% competence, we can prepare for them psychologically. Mm. And that's my area of expertise. Wow. That's outstanding because uh, in speaking with Michael Yorio, as you said, he's an op- operations expert of how can we prevent, um, how do we respond um, and you're talking about um, how can we build some uh, resistance prior. If we know we're living in this this world today, where there are terror attacks happening, shootings at schools, um, and even natural disasters, how do we build resistance to those to begin with? And then when they do happen, and they have been happening at an alarming rate, how do we bounce back from them? Um, so talk about that that psychological crisis, as it's called, that the person's response, psychological, emotional, behavioral response to a critical incident. What would be some of the psychological reactions and responses that we can expect from survivors? They can be all over the chart. It's very individualized, but we do have uh, some data on the most common uh, fear is one, Mm -hmm. Um, anxiety, uh, stress, and depression. Those are the most common. The most severe variation of all of those would be something called post-traumatic stress disorder. When someone faces a life-threatening event, we call that a trauma. That is a subset of critical incidents. And it it generates a crisis response that is stressful, but it's at a level of stress that the body and mind typically don't experience. It's quite extraordinary. And that post-traumatic stress can lead to a post-traumatic stress disorder if it is protracted for long periods of time uh, or if it interferes rather dramatically with one's ability to live their life in in a fairly productive way. But to give you some idea of uh, the scope of the prevalence of this, when one is experienced or exposed to a uh, critical incident that we will call a traumatic event, uh, 80 to 90% of people will actually develop a post-traumatic stress reaction. But it resolves pretty quickly. That reaction is typified by reliving the event over and over. They they will dream about it. They'll think about it in waking moments. And it it seems to just hijack uh, their consciousness for a period of time. Uh, They are likely to be irritable and hypervigilant, 
uh, seeing threats perhaps when they are not threats there. But again, that's very predictable and very protective, frankly. Sometimes people withdraw. Uh, rather than reach out for help, sadly, they pull back from what is ultimately has been found to be the number one source of resilience, which is other people. About 80 to 90% of people will go through a very short-lived period of such symptoms. However, they are expected to resolve. After about a month or two, if the symptoms persist and they are interfering with your life, your ability to, to do what you need to do, take care of others, take care of yourself, earn a living, if it interferes with that, then it reaches the amplitude of what we will call a disorder. On average, about 9% of people exposed to a traumatic event ultimately develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And you're right, to go back to earlier comments, it seems to be happening more and more frequently. I actually write a blog for Psychology Today magazine called, online magazine called When Disaster Strikes, and normally I only post one or two things per quarter, and I think I've posted already six things in a month wow. simply because of what has been happening in current events, which is a, a sad commentary. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for providing that overview to give us a sense of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, listeners, this is Dr. George Everly, disaster mental health expert, uh, and we're talking about the aftermath of all of these critical incidents and disasters and traumas that we've been experiencing in our country and around the world. Um, Dr. Everly, when we come back, I want to talk with you about um, something called resilience. You, you mentioned it, that bouncing back. Um, not everyone has a negative outcome, negative consequence when they experience a trauma. Some people do bounce back, and we'll learn more about that when we return. This is Living Well with Dr. Pegg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Stay with us. We'll be back. Are you prepared for a sudden cardiac arrest? Having an AED is simply not enough. School athletic coaches are required to have CPR and AED training, but they can only save a life with properly functioning and maintained equipment. Maintain compliance and reduce your liability with AED program management from SSI Guardian. Buy an AED and receive a two-year management program for free. Call us today at 877-878-5800 or visit us at SSIGuardian.com. You can learn a lot about yourself and God from a dog. When her children asked for a dog, this mom got them gerbils. So imagine their surprise, and hers, when she adopted an abandoned dog that she met in Dallas, Texas, just one day after her divorce. In a way that only God could orchestrate, her spur-of-the-moment decision to take in a little dog she named Dallas was just the beginning of a seven-year journey that transformed her life and taught her to see herself and God in a whole new light. Read Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, a delightful and heartwarming book by psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Part memoir, part Christian inspiration, Doggy Tales is a must-read for anyone who wants to learn to recognize God's voice, even in the most unlikely places. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll love Doggy Tales. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready safe learning environment. 
SSI Guardian's comprehensive evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. I've got Dr. George Everly on the line. We're talking about disaster mental health. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado on KLZ 560 AM and streaming live online from drpegradio.com. And we're brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. If you want to bring advanced active shooter response training to your school, college campus, church, or workplace, go to ssiguardian.com. Tell them you heard about them on Living Well with Dr. Pegg. also want to remind you about uh, the Pumpkin Pie 5K and 10K race in Denver this Saturday, November 18th. You just have one more day to register online and join my team for fun exercise and a big piece of pumpkin pie. Go to drpegradiocom slash pumpkin. Click on Join a Team and select my team, Living Well with Dr. Pegg. Now, uh, as we're approaching the end of the year, you may also be feeling like you didn't accomplish everything you set out to accomplish this year. If you're feeling stuck and ready for change and need some help to jumpstart your goals, register now for my Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat on Saturday, December 30th in Denver, Colorado. Space is limited. Go to drpegradio.com retreat to register today. Well, thank you so much, Dr. George Everly, for being my guest today on the program. It's my pleasure. Honored to be with you. And listeners, if you would like to join the conversation or ask Dr. Everly a question about resilience and disaster mental health, call us today at 303-477-5600. And uh, Dr. Everly, we're just about to get into this important topic of resilience, what you call psychological body armor. Um, not everyone has a negative outcome following a disaster, and, and we would expect that, as you said, people might experience fear, anxiety, stress, depression, um, hypervigilance, they may withdraw. Um, but not everyone has that negative outcome that persists, and we call that resilience. Can you talk more about that, what, what exactly that means? Uh, happy to. The term resilience... Uh, literally means the ability to bounce back. And it is the probably one of the hottest topics in uh, psychiatry and psychology today has been for about five years. Uh, my own personal journey has been that I have been a, a therapist. I've been a, a psychologist that specializes in treating depression and post-traumatic stress disorder for most of my career. And uh, then only about uh, 10 years ago did I really begin to focus on the preventative side of things. So in this sense, we're talking about two types of resilience. Uh, the type where you bounce back once you've gotten knocked down, so some life event has happened, a critical incident, has somehow compromised your usual ability to do what you need to do and basically be happy. Uh, that is the reactive resilience when you get knocked down. However, we've done some research and uh, we've discovered there's another type of resilience and we call it uh, proactive rather than reactive resilience. We sometimes call it resistance borrowing from the medical model where there is immunity or resistance to a pathogen 
In this case, it's something psychological. Most of the type of resilience that uh, people have practiced is bouncing back uh, from adversity. How do I get up when I get knocked down? And that's the whole field of crisis intervention, psychological crisis intervention, which we've actually been studying since the First World War. But this new facet is what is most intriguing to me, and that is how do we immunize people? We mentioned earlier in the show about a school shooting. How do you immunize children for events against events such as that? But then a more practical level, I have three children of my own. I didn't necessarily raise them with the idea that they would go through a school shooting. I did, however, raise them with the expectation that life would not necessarily be kind to them all the time. That even though, through no fault of their own, they were in uh, a good place, doing the right thing, sometimes bad things happen. No fault of their own. And I thought, one of the greatest gifts that I could give my children, other than unconditional love, is how to help them prepare to bounce back and the better part of that is become to some degree immune to the adversity that we all go through in life. The stories are certainly legion about students who had great academic potential but never quite lived up to their potential, about athletes who had great biological uh, aptitude, we'll call it, and yet never quite made it, never quite made it to where they thought they would be. Well, sometimes it's just bad luck. Sometimes it's an injury of some kind. But sometimes it's the inability to bounce back from stress, and sometimes it's the inability to just have stress roll off your back, like uh, kind of water off a duck's back. So we really focus on two types of resilience now, the proactive resistance immunity part as well as the reactive, which when I get knocked down, how do I get back? Mm -hmm. And both of those seem so relevant today, Dr. Everly, as we've been talking about with all of the mass shootings and natural disasters and terror attacks, we all all better have an ability to bounce back because these things seem like they're not going to end anytime soon. Uh, But the other uh, side of that that you're talking about is the resistance and almost an immunization to begin with. Um, and, and we hear so many, I guess, negative characterizations of the younger generation today, the millennials, uh, that they're fragile and, and um, you know, really don't know how to kind of press through uh, challenging circumstances. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems uh, that what you're talking about, this um, proactive resilience or resistance, would actually address um, that societal um, aspect as well. Absolutely. And, and again, I'm not an expert in the millennial generation, far from it. So whether that in, indictment of them is accurate or not is beyond beyond the. And probably of my every every generation of parents probably says the same thing, huh? Well, probably so. I, although my studies have have taken me to some interesting populations, uh, I was fascinated with groups of people that just seem to be remarkably resistant. So I studied for a period of time special forces personnel, especially Navy SEALs. But I also wanted to study people that just seem to 
to to have some, as to borrow the term, psychological body armor on. Adversity just doesn't seem to affect them, and and it could be the athlete who who looks forward to the pressured situation. They're the ones that say, send me in, coach. I, mm. The hotter the pressure, the better I perform. There are others who say, don't send me in. I, I don't want to have to make that determination, or I don't want to have to function under stress. So what makes those people different? And more importantly, if we can identify what makes them different, either on the immunity side or the bouncing back resilience side, can we teach it to other people? And that's what I've spent my career doing. Mm-hmm. And and what did you find, Dr. Everly? Is this something that, it, are there identifiable factors and can they be taught? Well, I, I, the, the good news is, uh, yes, we've been able to identify the factors. We are very confident in, in what we know. And we are also very confident that we can teach people. Uh, Daniel Ammons, a uh, uh, neurologist, and he very famously once said, you're not stuck with the brain that you have. <laughs> you know, you can restructure it, you can rebuild it, you can be anybody that you want to be. And that sounds like something out of Dale Carnegie's old, uh, you know, How to Be a Better Person series of books and lectures. But it's true. It, it's never too late. So what we were able to do is, is discover some core behavioral factors and psychological factors that seem to be more toxic, and we were also able to find certain psychological factors that seem to instill immunity and reactive resilience. Mm. And the best news of all is we can teach it to people, we can teach it to children. My interest has been initially individuals, but then I realized that the same factors, the same education and training could apply to organizations. A number of years ago, I wrote a book on how to create an organizational culture of resilience. Hmm. Wouldn't you want to work in a place like that? <laughs> Absolutely. And then and how about a community culture of resilience? Wouldn't you want to live in a place like that? Mm-hmm. Well, tell us what these five uh, factors are of um, personal resilience. And, and you use the metaphor... Um, uh, psychological body armor. So what would be the five pieces in our psychological body armor? And then I'll have you uh, explain and talk about each of them one at a time. But give us all five up front. Okay. And <laughs> and, and then what often happens in research is, is you, you modify your thinking a little no bit. No so problem. Let, let That's me, okay. <laughs> let, me, let me give you what, the, what, the, what we're thinking of these days in terms of... Yes, uh, it may just, change. Just, just, <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm in science, right? <laughs> Never the same. Uh, so we, we looked at factors that we thought were protective and helped people bounce back. And the, the number one factor was connection to other people. Do I have someone I can rely on? Who has my back? Who can I trust unconditionally? And study after study has shown that people that are connected have lower risks of diabetes, lower risks of premature coronary artery disease, lower risks of general illness throughout the lifespan, and they typically live longer. Related to our current discussion, however, and certainly I think it is inextricably intertwined, 
they seem to handle stress far better. We ask ourselves the reasons. Well, why might that be? Well, if you don't have someone to rely on, then the burden on everything shifts to you, which means you must always be vigilant, which means your central nervous system, especially the stress response nervous system, is always uh, revving higher and, and even idling higher, to borrow a sports I mean, sorry, a motor metaphor. Uh, so so you, you begin right away by uh, having higher levels of even resting stress. You're vigilant. You're looking, you're anticipating something and, and then you're you're always preparing for it, even though it never happens. And what's interesting about the central nervous system, if you worry about something, neurologically, it is as if it happened anyway. Hmm. So if you worry about something 10 times, it only happens once. It's actually happened to your brain and nervous system 11 times. Wow. And that's why we see diseases of aging, if you will, in people uh, prior to when we would expect them. The other thing is not just the vigilance, not just the preparedness, but when something happens, uh, who do you have to help you? What if something in some way exceeds your capacity to cope? It's not in your resources. What do you do then? Well, if you have a support system, perhaps they bring something, a value added to the table in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it helps you bounce back that way. So the first and foremost is, is uh, this, this connection to others. And Dr. Everly, let me ask you a question about sure. that. So is there a difference between our personal support networks and getting professional help? So back in the context of, say, a, a, a tragic um, shooting... Uh, you may have actual friends and family who support you, but is there a role uh, in terms of um, the value of support for resilience in getting professional help as well? Absolutely. I, I started uh, my psychology career. Before I, was a, I was a neuroscientist before I was a psychologist, and I started my psychology career doing diagnosis and, and therapy, and people would literally come to me once or twice a week and get the, the the support that I provided. Uh, what I ultimately shifted to, and I know there's a there's a large industry out there, is for lack of a better term, mentoring or coaching. So I've retired from the diagnosis and therapy world, but I continue to even do long distance and, and face to face coaching with sometimes athletes, sometimes executives, some people who want to move up the corporate ladder, they want to advance in whatever profession. And in that sense, they are still uh, getting the provision mm -hmm. of professional services, but this time not in the mental health context, but more in the coaching and mentoring. So I think that even if you weren't lucky enough to be born into a supportive family or live in a supportive area or work in a supportive environment, uh, through mentoring, coaching, and counseling, uh, you can certainly avail yourselves of those services. Right. And, and conversely, um, having lay people as your, as your um, personal support is actually very protective. They don't have to have a psychology degree to make a difference. Absolutely. We call that a peer support. Mm -hmm. 
Excellent. Well, there are four other pieces to, uh, to this psychological body armor. The first is uh, interpersonal support. Uh, what are the others? And we have a, just a couple minutes in this segment, but we'll continue talking about it in the next. Uh, perhaps the most important psychologically is optimism. But if you ask most people if they're optimistic, they will say, yes, I am. And we know they're really not. It's not that they're lying to you. It's just that they don't really understand what optimism is. So our research took us into an area where we tried to resolve that dilemma. And we found that there were two types of optimism, active optimism and passive optimism. The passive was, I hope things will turn out well. I I believe they will turn out well. The active optimist says much the same thing, but adds one important part to it, to the response. I believe it will turn out well because I will make it turn out well. So these are people that believe and practice the self-fulfilling prophecy, whereas the passive optimist does not. The person who believes in the self-fulfilling prophecy is one step closer to success, however they define it, than the passive optimist. Wow. And, you know, uh, Dr. Everly, you'll, you'll see people um, in the aftermath of a disaster, you'll see the interviews where uh, there's one family where uh, you can see in the background they've lost everything. Let's say it's a flood or a hurricane. And they'll say, um, you know what, we lost everything, but it's going to be okay. We're going to rebuild. We're going we're gonna to come back stronger. Uh, and then you'll see them interview another family where they've lost everything as well. And they're devastated, and they, they're crying, and they're not showing any hope or optimism. Uh, that really kind of captures what you're talking about here, doesn't it? Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to um, continue our conversation with Dr. George Everly, who's sharing with us um, the, the pieces of, uh, of armor in our psychological uh, body armor uh, that help us to bounce back after a disaster and even more importantly, resist uh, the, the, the effects to begin with. How do we build immunity to all the things that are happening in our world? Uh, and, and, you know, Dr. Everly, this show is uh, one of the themes is psychological strategies based on biblical principles. And I can't help but see some of the connections um, where you talked about interpersonal support. Uh, we know the Bible says two are better than one. And um, this act of optimism we know that faith without works is dead. And so it's just an uncanny parallel there. Uh, we'll continue to look at what's in your psychological body armor when we return. My guest is Dr. George Everly. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Stay with us. We'll be back. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. 
From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Do you ever make changes? But after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join psychologist, author, and transformation specialist, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark for a one-day Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Dr. Peg's Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat is coming to Denver on Saturday, December 30th. Go to drpegradio.com forward slash retreat to register today. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and my guest today is Dr. George Everly, author of many books, including Stronger, Develop the Resilience You Need to Succeed. Dr. Everly, thanks again so much for being on the program today. Oh, happy to be with you. And how can listeners get in touch with you, learn more about your work, your work, or purchase a copy of one of your many books? Uh, I'm in Maryland, uh, but I am uh, accessible certainly through the internet. My email address is g everly g e v e r l y then the number one at j h u dot e d u. Right. John. Everly one at jhu.edu. Mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins University. So That's I'll have correct. a link to Dr. Everly on my website, drpegradio.com. Uh, so, Dr. Everly, we're talking about um, uh, what's in our suit of psychological body armor, and you've talked about the importance of interpersonal support, probably the number one most important um, factor in resilience and resistance um, to trauma. Uh, you also spoke about active optimism. So there's three others, at least as of now, <laughs> based on <laughs> yeah. the current research we, that may change in the future. But this is our best, uh, our best scientific knowledge to date. <laughs> so the third one is uh, optimism is not enough. Hmm. One must act. So one must act and act decisively. But it's fair to say that many of us wait for that moment of absolute certainty. The problem is it never comes. So even though we, we, we're optimistic, we, we know we should act, many of us are paralyzed uh, by indecision or waiting for the perfect moment. And what we find is that those people that are innately uh, or have learned to be resilient uh, they are willing to act even in some moments of indecisiveness. They weigh the pros, the cons. They have the ability to, to quickly assess and, and take an action. One of the most important things I think I ever learned was a, a phrase, unfortunately I, unfortunately, I didn't learn it until uh, I was 40 years old. But, uh, and I don't know where it came from, but it's the phrase, 
anything worth having is worth failing for. Hmm. <laughs> That's a and twist. I, I thought, how in my first 40 years of life, how many times had I hesitated, had I failed to act because I was afraid of failing, afraid of looking silly, afraid of embarrassing myself. And as soon as I learned that, frankly, my personal life changed rather dramatically. So we must be decisive. Uh, courage is the ladder on which all other virtues mount. Mm. That was Claire Booth loose, by the way. And, but it's, it's not easy. Uh, but ha, ha, I wonder if any of your listeners have ever worked for a leader, a boss, a manager who, who had difficulty making a decision. Hmm. It's just a terrible workplace to, to, to be in. Or even a spouse, ever, right? Well, <laughs> Being married to someone who can't yes, make a decision. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even worse, how about a politician who can't <laughs> make a decision? But we won't go there. So those are three. The, yeah. the, uh, the support, the active optimism... Uh, taking advantage of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And let me uh, let me um, say a few things about sure. uh, that decisive action, because I think that's so important, Dr. Everly, that um, we can all become passive at times, and especially in, in, in light of a tragedy and a trauma, and, and you even describe some of the uh, signs that someone might be experiencing or moving towards post-traumatic stress disorder is withdrawing and kind of shutting down. Um, and and becoming depressed, and so it's easy to to fall into that trap of failing to take action, not just because you're afraid of failing, but it could really be part of being traumatized. Um, it, you know, so many people say they want something different, but they just fail to do something different. They they want change, but they don't make changes. And so you're saying really being resilient and even building resistance and immunity to trauma is about. Um, doing it even when it's hard, even though it's hard. And and as Nike might say, you know, just do it is so critically important. Absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's three of the pieces of our psychological body armor. There's uh, two more. Um, So we have the optimism. We have the inclination to act. Then we, we act and Action alone, however, uh, certainly does not guarantee success. Uh, But sometimes one of the inhibiting factors to acting is not just weighing the consequences, not just the fear of failing. It's it's not having a compass of some sort. And what, to be very honest, surprised me in my research is that resilient people seem to have a moral compass. They seem to have a code. They seem to have a structure that guided them. And, and there were many, many facets to it. Uh, but part of it was how to be honorable. It was being faithful. It was a sense of integrity. And another part of that, which, which kind of circles back to being a member of a group or having group support, is understanding that you are part of something greater than yourself. Well, if you are, then membership has a certain obligation that comes with it. If you expect the support of others, it is realistic that they should expect something from you as well, and not only support, but 
groups that are functioning honorably with integrity and a certain fidelity typically do better than groups that that don't have those characteristics. And that was actually observed even by Darwin in the 1870s. Now talk about uh, how this plays out in your observations. You you gave the example of the Navy SEALs in particular. Um, That's, you know, military comes to mind when you hear words like honor and um, uh, that mutual support. Um, Talk about uh, some of the things that you saw or, or heard in the interviews you did with the SEALs. Uh, there is a term, and I've never served in the military, but I've worked uh, over 35 years with numerous branches, and not just American military, but, but other countries' military personnel. One thing that, that strikes me is a term, um, as, we, as we know in real estate, they say location, location, location is, is the key in real estate. Well, apparently in functional groups, especially in the military, uh, it's unit cohesion, unit cohesion, unit cohesion. And that is the notion that you are part of something greater than yourself. You are willing, uh, God forbid, to sacrifice yourself if necessary for the better good, whatever sacrifice might mean. But I don't want to get stuck on the military because uh, the principle has direct applicability to those outside the military. Uh, and we often will hear about family ties. Uh, some people say it's, it's all about family. It's about protecting the family or it's about honoring the family or honoring. And, and before you act, perhaps you should consider the impact of your actions on the family, which is the same thing that we see in the, the elite military units. Before you act, think about the impact on those who who rely on you and those who trust you. Mm. Um, so I think this moral compass uh, really permeates uh, the, the other four factors mm-hmm. as well. And so interesting that because this is a virtue that we can all agree is a good thing, but to know that your research shows that this is part of what helps people bounce back and, and uh, build resiliency, but also and also build resistance to begin with before a tragedy even happens. So this is about um, a lifestyle prior to a tragedy or disaster. Absolutely. I mean, one, have you ever belonged to a club or admitted to a school or a team that just the membership alone made you feel better about yourself? (laughs) Yes. You know, and, and, and what happens is when you, the moment before you join that team or that club or you get admitted to that school, you think, well, I'm just kind of average. But then maybe afterwards you say to yourself, you know, I'm special. People see something in me that's special. And then a magical thing happens. You start doing special things because other people expect it of you and now you expect it of yourself. And I see that in, in elite military operatives. I see that. In, especially in athletes. I even see it in academia, uh, at academia at, uh, at elite schools. Mm-hmm. And so some of that, um, you talked about active optimism being self-fulfilling. Uh, some of that self-fulfilling prophecy occurs um, by virtue of being connected to a, something bigger than yourself or a group bigger than yourself that has a code, that has a sense of honor or integrity or accomplishment or expectations for, for good. Absolutely. Excellent. 
All right. Well, we're down to the last uh, piece of our psychological body armor. We've talked about interpersonal support, uh, active optimism, decisive action, um, having a moral compass. And they, they all seem very closely linked so far. What is the fifth and final piece of that psychological body armor? Tenacity. Hmm. Persistence. So let's go back. So you have this idea. You're optimistic. Uh, you are willing to take that first step. You're going to be decisive. You're going to act. You have a guiding, guiding filter of a moral compass, and you have people to, to watch your back and catch you if you fall. That's all great. But what we know is that life is seldom a direct line from point A to point B. We often take detours, and the tenacity, the persistence. How many times do I have to fail before I am successful? So when we ask people that question, most people said three to four failures and I'll reconsider. I think that's even mm -hmm. high. I think that, and I, frankly, I'm not even sure I believe that uh, based on 44 years of teaching college. But, um, but let's go with it. Let, mm -hmm. Let's say, okay, so most people will try something three times, and then they'll say, okay, this isn't for me. Uh, what we found was when we asked elite uh, athletes, uh, we interviewed a number of world-class and famous professional athletes. We interviewed, again, the, the elite military units. And uh, when we asked them, how many times would you fail before you'd consider an alternative approach, uh, they were coming in somewhere where about seven, eight, nine times. Uh, but what was interesting is probably the most frequently endorsed answer was never. Hmm. They, would, they would never give up. Wow. And now, again, I don't believe that either. I think that's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. uh, because at some point, um, when you've exhausted your resources, uh, as they say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different outcome. Uh, we ha we have to know when to move on. Mm -hmm. That that is a key part. Blind tenacity can be remarkably self destructive. All you have to do is go to a, a gambling casino and and, and witness that. Uh, but it also happens in life. So so it's it's a a, a double edged sword. What we call in science a curvilinear relationship. As tenacity increases, your likelihood of success increases. But at some point your tenacity begins to waste resources. You have to know when to draw a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it probably it really is more about that mindset. I, I interviewed a um, Green Beret Special Forces um, uh, officer on my show uh, some time ago, and uh, he he talked about that these same qualities that that you're that you're discussing here, and, and in particular that that tenacity and not wanting to give up. And he shared an example of um, where he, he's an Ironman triathlete, and um, he had uh, popped his hip <laughs> out of the socket uh, during one of his races and did not want to get give up. He kind of popped it back in, uh, but the medics pulled him out of the race. And so uh, he wouldn't have given up um, un until or unless his, his leg actually failed him. Uh, but I think it really is that mindset. Um, you, you, may, you may not be able to keep pushing through uh, certain circumstances, but your mindset is, I will until I can't any longer. Right, exactly. 
Excellent. Uh, well, let's. Uh, you, you said that these skills are teachable. So let's talk um, in the few minutes that we have remaining about uh, how would we go about teaching this. You, you talked about uh, some of the things that you tried to instill in your children when they were younger. Um, it, it, if we are past the, the age of parenting and we're no longer children ourselves, those who are listening, and we just want to build our own psychological body armor as adults, what are some things that we can do? How can we learn uh, these skills? What environments can we place ourselves in um, to make it more likely that we'll develop this type of resistance and resilience? Uh, before I answer that, I just mm -hmm. want to add, uh, not just for yourself, but these are also important skills for managers. To mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. So we, we talk about a construct called resilient leadership. Excellent. How can managers instill resilience in the people that report directly to them? Mm -hmm. so, so, But say, the same basic principles apply. And, and, and I think, first and foremost, it's, it's knowing that these... Um, five characteristics that we've talked about are to some degree sequential. They really are, from what we can tell, a formula. So where does, where does one begin? Well, it begins with self-awareness. Mm. It, it begins by analyzing where have I been when I think about my greatest failures or frustrations, and, and compare that when you try to answer the question why to gee, was it a lack of any one or more of these characteristics? I mean, if so, that's, that's quite an enlightenment. Surround yourself with people uh, who have some of these characteristics, mm. whom you admire. I was very blessed when I went to school, and, and I, I studied with some of the finest experts in the world at what they did. And I, was, I, I basically went on and said, I'm a blank slate teach me. Mm -hmm. I don't have to agree with everybody, but I'm going to immerse myself in your world and, and teach me. And, and what they did was model behavior for me. They, sometimes they would sit me down informally and sometimes formally in the classroom, but oftentimes it was informally. And even if it wasn't one of those two, I, I was always observing and seeing mm -hmm. how they would handle stressful situations. And Dr. Everly, you're hearing the music. We're going to oh. have to come to okay. a close. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your expertise with us today on how to build resilience in psychological body armor. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm uh, really happy to be with you. Thanks so much. My guest has been Dr. George Everly. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.